Thanks for the great time of worship, guys. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We're continuing our series in the book of Romans, looking at these first seven chapters on the theme of sola fide, faith alone. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I should have said this, page 915, if you're using a Bible right in front of you. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who, who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruits for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Lord, we gather today, and God, we thank you that we have been offered freedom in Christ. Freedom not only to have a different destiny, but freedom to live a different way. And God, I ask this morning as we reflect on that in Romans 7, that you would teach us and stretch us and, God, stun us again with your beauty and greatness. In whose name I pray, amen. There are often two ways of doing things. I was reading a story recently of a guy, young guy, who had not really been involved as a gardener, but he got a vision for planting a lot of flowers in a, in a, in a big, giant garden that he had prepared in, in a typical wooden-headed male fashion, went out and bought way too many flats of flowers and starts putting them in because these little tiny um, plants that he's putting in and they're annuals and he's putting them in literally in the in the the scorching heat of the afternoon and it is just hot it's humid he is literally drenched with sweat and he's grunting and groaning as he's working his way through these little things and his wife comes out she looks down at him and she looks over at this, this sea of flowers he's already planted, which already are starting to wilt and, and look like they're gasping for, for water. And she looks at him, she, look, excuse me, she looks at the, at the number of trays he still has to put flowers and she says to him, she says, you know, you really should plant those at night, not in the heat of the day. It'd be much better for the flowers and also be a lot easier on you. And of course, he responded very well. And he said, don't you think I know that? But it, it says, plant in full sun. <laughs> now, if you don't know why people just laughed, don't be the flower planter in your family. There are different ways of doing things. Paul is talking here in the book of Romans about two ways of doing things. 
He's been talking in Romans chapter 1 through 5 about two ways that people try to have a relationship with God, two ways they try to get there. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, he talks about the normal way that people try to get to God through their own efforts, through their own works. Uh, basically, we know there must be a standard by which a per- that a person has to meet in order to have a relationship with God. There must be a standard to get into heaven. And we're right. And Paul says in Romans 1 through 3, there is a standard. There is a standard, a a validating performance record that someone needs to have to warrant heaven, and that is total, complete righteousness, sinless righteousness. And so he lines up all of humanity on one end of the room, and he says, okay, we're going to talk about what percentage of people Meet that criteria and have the opportunity to have a relationship with God. And he summarized in verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. And he said this, What shall we conclude then? As it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There's nobody. He says nobody qualifies on the basis of their own righteousness, on their own validating performance record, their own resume, their report card. Nobody qualifies. But then he goes on to say, but God has offered a second way. And this way is found through the work of someone else, that Jesus Christ came to earth, came among us, the God-man lived his life, became flesh, and lived totally righteously, absolutely fulfilled, a validating performance record, has a resume of total righteousness, and he stuns us with the fact, Paul does, as he says, that we can share in that record, for he says in Romans chapter 3, he says, there's now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Basically, what he's saying is Jesus Christ not only died on the cross for our sins, bore the punishment for that sin, that penalty for that sin. He, he not only died the death we should have died, he lived the life we should have lived. He validated in his life total righteousness The verdict of Christ was totally righteous. And Paul says, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you too can have his resume. You can stand in his righteousness. You can be justified, which means to be declared righteous. And so he says, he culminates in in chapter 6, and he says, there's really two realms of life, two ways of trying to get to God. One is you can live under law. And under law means that you are basing your criteria for acceptance with your performance, your resume, your self-resumation, your righteous deeds, your spirituality, uh, all of those things. Or you can be under grace, which means that you have the validating performance record of Jesus Christ laid to your account. And Paul says this is justification, Romans 1 through 5. You are declared righteous, acceptable into a relationship with God forever if by faith you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. He says there's two ways. But now he tells us there is not only two ways for acceptance with God, there are two ways of living the Christian life. Romans chapter 6 through 8 begins to now talk about the doctrine of sanctification, which is just a big mouthful, means living a righteous or a holy life. 
how we live the life that's been given to us under grace. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's addressing you in chapters 6 through 8, and he's saying there are two ways that you can choose to, to live the Christian life, to try to do the Christian life. One is described in chapter 7. The other is described in chapter 8, and they are conflicting in their, uh, their lifestyle. He says you can, in chapter 7, you can act as if you're still under law. You can act a rules-oriented, getting-it-right, self-effort life of chapter 7, and he says, I've done it, you'll do it, everybody does it, or you can live the, the lifestyle of chapter 8, which is this under-grace lifestyle where you are now living a relation or relationship-oriented, responding to the Spirit's leading, self-Spirit-controlled life. And Paul says, here are these two conflicting ways of doing life. And now he says to us, there are five things I want you to understand as we about to embark on the comparison of these two ways of doing life. And I'll confess right at the beginning here, if you haven't figured this out, um, I was an abysmal failure in getting the sermon summary done this week. Actually, the sermon summary is in the bulletin. It's just sermon without a summary. Um, there are no notes, which means today you have to listen. Um, and we don't even have pictures for you to look at. So this is, this is dire, dire. All right, so, but I, here are the five things you must understand. First thing he says you must understand, if you're going to understand the two options of living the Christian life, he says first, and, and I want you to choose the second, he says uh, you must understand what happened to you. What happened to you when you were born again? He says this in verses 1 through 4. He begins in verse 1. He says, the law has authority over man only as long as he lives. He says, look, when a person dies, they're no longer under legal restraints. And he gives the illustration of marriage. He says, when a, when a, when a marriage partner dies, when one of the spouses dies, the, the, the other spouse is no longer bound to the laws of that marriage. They are now free to form a covenant relationship of marriage with someone else. And first he says, you died to the old partner. If so, and, and, and he says, this is what happened to you. You died, he says in Romans chapter 6. You died when you received Jesus Christ as Savior. You died to your marriage, to the law. You died to living under the system of law. And you have now been married to someone else because you died to that and that relationship has been severed. You are now free to be married to Christ. And that's why he says in verse 4, he says, So my brothers, you also died to the law of the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. He says, you're now married to Christ. You belong to Christ. You're no longer devoted to the law. You're no longer trying to please the law. Getting it right is no longer the driving reality in your life. Pleasing, knowing, enjoying Jesus Christ is now to be that driving reality. And he says the first thing you need to know as you think about the two ways of living the Christian life is you need to realize what has happened to you. Secondly, he says you need to understand the role of God's law, his standards of righteousness, his commandments, and he says this in verse 5. He says, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our, in our bodies 
so that we bore fruit for death. Here Paul is explaining the whole purpose of God's commandments and laws. And he says, look, before you choose to live this way, the way that I'm talking about in Romans 7, you need to understand the whole purpose of God's laws and God's commandments. And he says, here's the reality. They had two purposes. But one of the things that you're thinking of is not one of the purposes. Let me illustrate it. He said, first of all, the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. It is to show sin, convict us of sin. Romans 3, he says that in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, in order that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable. It it shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our sense of, of sin and our need to turn to him for forgiveness and health. This is what the law does. It is is the beautiful reality. It's why the Lord wrote the laws on our hearts and our conscience. Why we have that inherent intuitive sense that ah, lying isn't right, stealing isn't right, adultery isn't right. I, I I just inherently know these aren't right things. Well, that comes from an inherent voice that is described in Romans 2 as God's law written on your conscience. Why did God put it there? Well, to show us this is wrong. This is not a good thing. This is a destructive thing. The second thing that the laws of God do and the commandments of God is one you may not have been as aware of as the first, and that is that they provoke sin. It says in verse 5, the sinful passions aroused by the law. These sinful desires are actually stirred up by God's commandments. All I need is someone to tell me I can't do something. We get that. It's a, it's, a, it's a motivating thing. Can be okay in a coaching standpoint, but when we're talking about spiritual morality, it's a destructive, it's a proud thing. It's a, it's, it's a rebellious thing. It usually incites a spirit of pride, of independence, of, of arrogance within us. Paul's even going to warn us in the, in the passage we'll look at next week. But sin, in verse 9, seeing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced to me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, the sin was dead. read the story years ago of Donald Gray Barnhouse. This was many years ago, and he had preacher. He had traveled. He, he was getting on a train, and a Native American and a friend were coming in to an um, East Coast train station. And this was the time, first time this fellow had traveled from the western part of the United States, to the more congested eastern part, and he gets here, and he, and he notices, and the, uh, Donald Gray Pornhouse is watching this guy as he goes over, and he sees a sign that says, no spitting, no spitting allowed. And the Native American looks down, and there's spittle all over the ground. And he watched the Native American, and he looked up, and he walked over another part of the platform, and he looks, there's no signs, and he looks down at the ground, and he heard him say to his friend, he, he gets his attention, and he says, no sign, no spit. And Donald Graham Barnhouse went, ah, there's a perfect illustration of Romans 7, that you put a sign up, and it immediately motivates people saying, ah, all you have to do is tell me I can't do something. Now, you may be out there and thinking, well, that's, that's because, that's just the power of suggestion, Mark. I mean, it's like, it's like I said, if I said, okay, I have been told that at some point during the service this morning, during the sermon, 
in back of those bushes, there is going to be a guy without a shirt on that's going to all of a sudden show up. Please don't anybody look at those bushes for the rest of the service. <laughs> of course, you're like, oh, come on. I would never have even bothered to look at those. But I mean, I know there's not even, well, of course, no one, Pastor Mike, Pastor Tim, who knows what can happen around here. But, but it's the seed. Okay, so we understand that. Certainly, seeding things does give the power of suggestion. But this is more than that. This is more than just suggesting. This is motivating to go against the rule. Confronted by the law, sin takes on the character of rebellion so that people enjoy transgressing commands in order to demonstrate their independence. We first learned that the laws of God, the commandments of God, show us our sin. They can even stir up our sin. The purpose of that is so that we can see our state apart from God, so that we can see our need of God to live righteously. What the laws of God and the commandments never do is to enable us and to empower us to live righteously. And Paul is saying that to us. The law didn't really help us. The law itself wasn't the thing that made us holy. It didn't empower us to live holy. It just showed us where they weren't. But as a matter of fact, in our sinfulness, we tended to use the law to, to be provoked to sin. So he's saying that the, the law is absolutely limited. And the reason for that is found in the third thing he tells us we must understand. And we must understand our inability to ever forget, fulfill God's, right, God's laws on our own. He says... What will happen in verse 5, he says, what we, we bore the fruit for death. The remainder of chapter 7 will highlight our inability to live righteously in our own strength. Paul's going to go on and Paul's going to say, what I wanted to do, I didn't do it. What I knew I shouldn't do, I did. Now, Paul was this spiritual guy. I mean, he was a spiritual mucky muck. He was a spiritual heavyweight. And yet he says, as I lived my life, when I tried to, to renovate myself and an effort to live the right way and to follow the commands on my own, he says, I fell flat on my face. When I tried to live the way that I'm going to argue not to live, I found that it did not lead to righteousness, that there is no one that can live the Christian life, the spiritual life, on their own. Jesus even said that. Matter of fact, in a passage where Jesus is very much commanding his disciples to obey him, John 15, he says this. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. You're my friends if you do what I command. Clearly saying, I want you to obey me. I want you to follow my command. The most important command, to love each other. But what Jesus has said in the verses just before that in John 15 is the story of the vine and the branches. It's that context. And he says in John 15 verse 5, look, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. And then he goes on to saying, I want, this is my command, love one another. But what he's saying is, you try to love each other as a branch separate from the vine, you're toast. You can't live the commands of God on your own. You're not wired that way. God himself must be living his life through us. And he says you have to be tapped into the vine, drawing the life of the vine. 
The third thing we have to understand is that we do not have the capacity, the ability to live these commands. The fourth thing this passage tells us is we must understand our propensity to want to depend on ourselves. Now, this one is really important because it is the foundation for all the tension of Romans 7 and 8. In Romans 7 and 8, Paul will highlight, particularly in chapter 7, that though we are in a position where we're under grace, where we, have, we are depending on Christ's performance record, His righteousness to be accepted to God eternally, that we still have in our day-to-day living this thing called the flesh, this sinful nature, this propensity and disposition or orientation towards to sin and self. And he says, this is there. This is a reality. And as a matter of fact, it's still our default mode. It's, it's the way we're familiar with. And it loudly declares this. I want to be enough. I want to be sufficient. It is the self-life. The self-life that leads to self-promotion, self-ambition, self-absorption. It is selfishness, self-sufficiency. I want it to be about me. It is what that self-life declares. But here's what happens. Rules, lists, commandments help us to measure ourselves. They help us to feel good about ourselves. They help us to, to, to elevate and say, well, I do have some sufficiency. I do have some, some merit. I, I, I am doing this thing. I am accomplishing it. I, I, I grade out. I'm, I, man, I, I'm, not a, I, I'm not a B. I'm an I'm, I'm a, I'm a A-. I'm not a D. At least I'm a C+. Plus. The, the flesh constantly says, I want a way to measure. I want to be measuring. That's why Paul says in, in, in Corinthians, he says, what is pride? Pride is simply this. You're comparing yourself with others. What lists do is give us a benchmark. What rules do, what commandments do, even convictions can do, is they help us to say, well, I, I got a little more than that guy. Yeah, that guy, good person to avoid because they're obviously more serious than I am about spiritual things. But Paul is saying, There is a natural propensity in the flesh to be drawn to commandments, to be drawn to rules, to be drawn to lists, to be drawn to measuring myself. And he says, this is why Romans 7 is such a reality in our lives. We all want to be on the mathematical formula. I don't want to be a less than. I want to be on the greater than side. And so I want to find those things that say, Mark Willie, B plus here. D over here, good thing to avoid. But we want to measure ourselves. And this is the propensity we have towards lists and commandments and rules. Because we are always comparative. Many years ago, we had a woman that was attending our church. She had come out of a very ritualistic Christian background. She had come and really had embraced grace um, and salvation. And I remember her talking to me once. And she was older, lived a long life, good life, but but very devout in her practices. But she had come to realize that she had never really embraced salvation by grace. And now she had. But she came to me one day and she said, Pastor Mark, I miss the lists. I knew exactly what she meant. I miss the lists. It's a way of evaluating. You know, it, it gives me a sense, how am I doing? We are drawn that way, right? Right? 
I mean, we, we want to evaluate. We want to we compare. And Paul is saying it's dangerous because that is what we put our, our trust in. That's what we depend on. He says, you're not devoted to that way anymore. You're not dependent on that. You're not, he says, you're not giving yourself to pleasing that anymore. It's now a person. It's now a relationship. It's a whole different way of life. But we all, our flesh is constantly crying to us, I want to be enough. I want to be sufficient. I want to be better. I want to be right. So we make our own lists. Fundamentalists did it. This is my background. Fundamentalists had a million lists. Don't play cards. Don't drink. Don't go to movies. Don't go mix bathing. Don't do anything. Basically, the idea is the... The, the, the idea is, now again, there were things there that are, were really getting given to help people have personal convictions, and personal convictions are important, but they become a report card that we can measure ourselves, and so we actually become focused on the grades, not on the person. They become focused on measuring myself, but what's driving it is largely at the base is flesh. And Paul says, I get that. I'm very comparative. I'm a very proud man by nature. And I'm constantly trying to evaluate. He says, but that's law. You're not married to that anymore. You're married to a person that you can love and enjoy and do life with. But we all want to be better. We all want to be right. Every generation tends to have a litmus test test of Christians that define spirituality and greater spirituality. Some theologically, you know, we believe in the doctrines of grace. In the past, it was, you know, we believe in the dispensational and we could chart the, you know, whatever it is that, that, that floats your boat, that, but it can make, it can become the thing that we find our security in, our confidence in. Maybe you're here and you'd say, well, I don't really have those things and I'm, I'm a Christian but I don't really, well, then maybe, maybe you've bought into the world's lists. Maybe you'll find that what's really driving you is measuring yourselves by where you live or by how attractive you or your children are or how successful you or your children are or countless other things. But Paul's saying this is all, a, it's, it's all a lifestyle, even as a Christian, that's not the one that I want you to experience in Romans chapter 8. This is the danger also of movements, large movements. It can be denominations. It can, it can be just um, great teachers that, that bring uh, a new emphasis in. They give us a common language, a common phrase, common phraseology, common convictions but they feed our fleshly motivations to be important, to be superior, to be smarter, to be more spiritual. And Paul would say this to us. You're living like you're married to the law. You are devoted to getting it right, doing it right, looking right, acting right. You're putting yourself back in the prison Jesus came to free you from. You're married to him. God in the flesh you're in relationship with Jesus Christ. You are called to live in joyous communion with him. Your faithfulness to godly standards of it will flow out of the enjoyment. Not a benchmark to make sure you're getting it right, which causes you to evaluate how you're doing with the rest of the crowd. How's your crowd doing with the bigger crowds? 
That is why failure is one of God's primary means of spiritual growth. If you've lived with Jesus a long time, I would guess many of you would say, if you describe the experiences where you most came to know the beauty of grace and the beauty of Christ, it is where you have fallen on your face with something. It's not usually our spiritual faithfulness, but it is our spiritual failure where we come to realize, I'm not what I thought I was. This was not what I thought it was. This did not produce what I expected it to. Failure in my life has absolutely been the most meaningful spiritual moments of my life where I have come to realize that it was not my performance that God was holding me to. It was the fact that I'm his son. And that I screwed up and I messed up and it didn't turn out as I thought. And, and I'm not saying any more than Paul is saying, yeah, well, let's go out and, and, and sin that grace can abound. But I am saying that it is in our failure that God most points us towards Romans 8 and away from Romans 7. Most of us, if we're thriving in Romans 7, we think we're the big, with a, with a, with a big guy on the block spiritually. We're just going to live in pride until God mercifully allows the props to get knocked out and we see, oh my goodness, God didn't love me because I got it right. God didn't value me because I'm doing the right things, I'm living the right way. He valued me because he values me. He loves me because he loves me. He made me his child because he wanted me. Not because I brought something particular to this enterprise it is also why we are all, and it, because we don't really believe that we can do nothing without Jesus until we are reminded of it because we couldn't do anything without Jesus. It's also why we are so conflicted in our spiritual journey. It's why we jump in and out of Romans 7 and Romans 8 that we, the guy who is living in Romans 7 is still holding out hope that he has some loveliness, some greatness, some commendable, praiseworthy qualities that he can hang his hat on. The guy in Romans 8 is saying, I got nothing, but I have everything because I have Christ. But the longer we're living here just holding out you know, maybe I'm this, maybe I'm this, I'm not this, but maybe I... Paul says, it's, it's a trap, man. It's measuring yourselves. It is imbibing the, the fresh wind of grace and living in what he is going to now describe to us, the newness of the Spirit. The fifth things he wants us to understand, understand the role of the Holy Spirit in your new way of life. Verse 6 says this, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Romans 8 will mention the Holy Spirit 19 times. In the remainder of chapter 7, the Spirit will not be mentioned. Paul is going to describe a lifestyle in Romans chapter 7 where we are trying to live, particularly verses 14 and following. We are trying to live in our own strength, measuring ourselves against standards, uh, whatever those standards are, to, to, to evaluate us and to make us feel good about ourselves by performing. And he says, you do that, but you don't do that by the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't lead you that way. 
People will. Churches will. Preachers will. You will. But the Spirit won't. The Spirit will lead you a whole different way in Romans chapter 8. It is all about the Spirit of God. In this new way of the Spirit, living devotedly with Jesus Christ, finding your joy in Jesus Christ, living dependently on Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God offers us a new way of living. But Paul is reminding us here in this opening salvo in Romans 7, you can be a Christian and be doing the Christian life as if you are still under law, not under grace, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close my sermon with this. There are, I believe, three common obstacles to living in connection with the Spirit. These common obstacles keep you living in Romans 7, not chapter 8. I'd like to just mention them quickly. Three words, comfort, volume, and pride. Your life is too safe. Comfort. You are closest to God when nearness to Him is a necessity. Usually, we are driven to God and depending on God and relying on the Spirit out of need. He promises all kinds of things. He says, you know, the Spirit will give you what to say when you're, when you're in dangerous situations. In Luke 11, Jesus tells us in his final talk to his disciples, that he got the boys together, and he says, look, the helper's coming. The comforter's coming. He gives us these descriptions. This is the guy who's coming. The Holy Spirit's going to come and take my place because I'm not going to be here in bodily form. He's going to be your helper. He's going to be your comforter. The problem is when you're feeling comfortable, you don't need a comfortable, comforter. And when you are not feeling helpless, you don't tend to need a helper. So our state of lack of need is invariably a state where we are most prone to measure ourselves by our strengths or perceived strengths, as Romans 7 does, rather than living, fully embracing this newness of life in the Spirit. Here's my question to you. Where in your life are you living in such dependence on God that if he does not come through, you will fall flat on your face? Where? You say, well, I, I, I don't know. I, but that's not really up to me, right? Well, yes and no. Because God prompts us to do things. Where in your life? Is it in your money? Is it in your time? Is it in your, your serving others? Where are you, or are you living in such a margin-filled lifestyle that there is no sense of desperation? You may say, well, yeah, I'm desperate. Is your desperation driving you to God? No, I'm just sort of willing it through. Okay, you're not desperate enough. Where in your life are you living that if God doesn't come through, you fall flat on your face? That, I believe, is what the life of faith is supposed to look like. The second thing is, your life may be too loud. Volume. I don't know exactly what it will look like for you to be silent or still before the Lord, but I do know that no matter what your personality is, it is a spiritual discipline to be still, to listen, to turn out the distractions and din of our world. The most important part of every day is that time of quiet with God. Because there is a din of, of distractions and volume that are coming. They're coming through your busyness. They're coming in your activities. They're coming in your media. They're coming in social media uh, practices. 
they're coming in the news and the blogs and the, the music and the videos and involvement with people. There must be an intentional quietness to hear. If we're going to be led by the Spirit and, and live under the control of the Spirit, there must be an intentional quietness with the Lord that He can speak into our lives. And a lot of us, our lives are just too loud. Third, your life, your, your you may be too big. Pride. Jesus said that the Spirit would come and bear witness to Jesus. He would come and bring glory to Jesus, and strikingly, he would do that in us. It's this amazing picture that God is going to show his awesomeness through our lives, and it happened when, the, when Peter and John, they stood before the Sanhedrin that day, and as they stood before the Sanhedrin, and they're listening to these guys, and these guys are talking about um, uh, theology, and they're talking about the works of God in their midst, and, and, and the Sanhedrin are sitting there going, what in the world? And they said, man, it says they marveled because they recognized these men had been with Jesus. They recognized these guys had something beyond themselves. There was Jesus all over these guys. Do you know why they knew that? It says in the next phrase, because they knew they were ignorant men. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm real excited about people looking at me and saying, oh, there's Jesus. But the idea that Mark is an ignorant man in order to get there is not as appealing. But John the Baptist said it best. He said, he must increase. You must decrease. That's a small print. We must be allowed to be seen in what we're not. We must be transparent and vulnerable and open and aware and willing to face what we are as a leader. Embarrassed that we're not put together. Willing, I don't know. I don't know what we should do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to pull it, but we want to we we hide it. As a, as a people person, I can't be there for you. I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm afraid I need space. I'm living beyond my quietness right now. As a helper, honestly, I'm too exhausted to do this with the right spirit right now. Now, if you're not a helper, don't use that line. But if you are, recognize some of this is just being willing to say, I'm not that much. I'm an ignorant man. I'm just that, that, that ignorant, less than, cast aside fisherman who had a great God. There's too much of us. Are we willing to live desperately, believing that crying out to God is our primary role in life, that seeking God is the most important part of every single day? And I'm going to close with this statement, and I'm going to ask you to write this down if you have a pen or flip it into the phone somehow. And it's a phrase I'd like you to think about. It's a question. Are you willing to believe this? That God does not that that God does not measure you by the good you do, but by the grace you accept. Are you willing to believe that? That God does not measure you by the good you do, but by the grace you accept. The more you imbibe and lean into that statement the more you are leaning into the lifestyle of Romans 8. The more that you are repelled by that statement,
the more you will find yourselves leaning into the lifestyle of Romans chapter 7. I'm just seeding that baby with you. If you're mad, I'm not preaching next Sunday. Kill Mike. Okay, <laughs> let's pray. Lord, we're amazed that we stand in grace, that you have come among us, Lord, and have died the death we should have died and lived the life we should have lived. You did it for us. But Lord, it is just as stunning that you don't leave us there and say, okay, you take it from here. But you also talk about a different way of living. Contrary to our flesh, contrary for our own needing to be great, needing to measure ourselves, you allow us to live out the glory of being accepted in the beloved and not being on the line. And God, we all acknowledge every one of us flips back and forth. Lord, more and more, teach us to live the new way of the Spirit. The freedom of not being on the line, of not having to be important, of not having to increase but truly allowing your glory to be seen in and through our lives. Lord, do that in us. Do whatever you have to do with us to do it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.